Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individuals and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hello and welcome back to Codish. My name is Jonan Scheffler. I'm a developer advocate here at Heroku. And I am joined today by my friend Isaac from Driven Data. Isaac, introduce yourself, please. I am Isaac Slavitt. I'm a co-founder and data scientist at Driven Data. And I work with uh, mission-driven organizations to help figure out the best ways to use their data for the kind of social impact problems that they're working on. That is a very polished elevator pitch. I feel like it, it was very casual, too. This is a thing you have clearly said many times. You know, I like to change it up a little bit just so it sounds fresh. Yeah, that's very relaxed. I want to detail a little bit for our listeners what I know of driven data, and then you can tell me where I'm wrong and maybe give us a little more detail if that's okay. Sounds great. So uh, as I understand, driven data came out of the Harvard Innovation Lab in 2014. Yeah, that's right. And we I actually, the original idea came from a, a grad school project. Um, my my partner Peter and I were looking at um, how how we might find an interesting data set that had some sort of social angle and work on that. And uh, we really had a lot of trouble finding it. So um, what's the next best thing to working on a social impact data set is uh, coming up with a platform to collect social impact data sets. That was a brilliant step, actually. And so this was a graduate school project for you. What were you studying? Uh, we were in a computational science and engineering program, which is sort of like a computer science and applied math flavor of what we now call data science. So this was uh, 2014. When do you think the the field of data science really started to explode? I mean, it's still exploding. I think, though, in the beginning, these were pretty select skills. Like if you were if you were going to become a data scientist, you were probably working at one of the big companies, if you wanted to do a lot of machine learning work or kind of bleeding edge machine learning, artificial intelligence kind of work. Uh, but I guess there are still plenty of roles in just business intelligence teams across the country, right? Different corporations. Yeah, you're totally right. I think the names have always been kind of an interesting progression. So even in 2014, people were talking about data science, but it was still relatively new. I mean, it was only five years ago, but very few people had that title and most of them were working at, you know, successful startups in the San Francisco Bay Area. And even now, just a few years later, it's really exploded in popularity. So today, there are six of you at Driven Data doing That's all right. of this work yourselves and a tremendous amount of work. I was shocked when I heard that number, actually. I think you have right now uh, on your site three active competitions. You're running these competitions all the time on these data sets. So, so tell me how that works. What do you, how do you come up with these ideas for these competitions? What do they do for you? Sure. So uh, we always like to have some competitions that people can work on. Um, a big part of our user base is people who are getting into data scientists, uh, getting into data science. And so in addition to data science practitioners and academic researchers and grad students, uh, there are a whole lot of people who are in quantitative fields or they're kind of data science adjacent, but they're not data scientists in their day jobs, and they're looking for interesting problems to work on. 
And since we understand that desire so well, we always like to have some uh, competitions on the site, even if they're just for fun and not for a prize. But the competition. So occasionally you run them for just just to put the knowledge out there. And, and so I come and I contribute my model that I've built. Forgive me, I am not a data scientist. Uh, so I'm very likely to misuse words in this discussion. But I come, I find your competition, I download the data set, and I train up a model that I think accurately predicts something. So uh, as an example, one of the competitions up there right now is to uh, predict um, dengue fever uh, infections, I guess, uh, as the the climate changes through mosquito-infested regions, you're able to predict sometimes based on climate and weather patterns where the next dengue fever outbreak is going to be. So I train up my model on this problem and I submit it to you uh, under an open source license, which I applaud you for, by the way, right? It's MIT, is that correct? Yeah, MIT. Okay. And then um, even, even if, for example, this dengue fever one doesn't offer a prize, we're still building the knowledge of the science around this, this dengue fever outbreak, and we're contributing back to the world generally, right? Yeah, definitely. And we, we sort of look at these uh, as really fun warm-ups for folks who are interested in competing in the competitions or learning about data science. I think for a lot of people who are getting into the field, um, one of the biggest early roadblocks is not necessarily learning particular skills because with um, like online courses and just you know YouTube videos and uh, blogs and other resources, there's so much information out there. Uh, what they're really struggling to find is an applied project where they can get feedback. So it's kind of like um, if I think back to uh, my college calculus courses, I think like the even exercises had solutions in the back, but the odd ones didn't. And so if you're trying to learn by yourself and you don't know how well you're doing, um, that's a real roadblock to, to kind of moving your skills forward. So these competitions are always out there for folks to work on. Um, and we also have a pipeline of four prize competitions that get developed and released on a sort of uh, uh, relatively regular schedule. I, I like very much that sense of community that evolves around these competitions. You're able to get immediate feedback because you can uh, quantitatively compare your results against what other people in the competition have submitted, right? So you know immediately who you're racing against, and there's this feeling of, of being on a team on behalf of science. I mean, you're all working towards this, this common, very altruistic goal. I imagine that's a very fulfilling way to work. I, I have never had the opportunity uh, as a developer to work for a company that did this kind of thing. I mean, I find value in what I do, don't get me wrong. And I think people are good at, at justifying the value in what they do. But but this is very clearly changing the world. I applaud you. That's got to be a very good feeling. It feels great. Actually, one of the um, most gratifying things about doing this has been to see that even for competitions where there's a really robust prize, like there's a lot on the table that people are competing for. A pattern that we often see is that somebody who's winning, you know, they're in like the top three and they have a good shot of taking home um, a big piece of that prize, will go on the forum and share with the other people who are working on it some pointers and tips and tricks from their exploratory analysis and modeling. Just because um, it feels like one of those pay it forward things where they learn from other people and um, they've learned a lot from these competitions. And so 
it, it doesn't feel like a zero sum game, even though there's prize money on the table. I really appreciate that mentality, this like sense of team that appears. And you mentioned even when there is a lot on the line, I'm very curious to know what is what is the largest prize you've offered for one of these? Sure. So I think um, there was a competition that wasn't exactly the same as our drivendata.org competitions in that it wasn't people submitting predictions to a straight predictive modeling competition. But we ran a uh, kind of online challenge called Concept to Clinic. Um, This was, I would say, a year or two ago, where people were kind of taking models that had been developed in a previous data science competition and actually writing software. So we opened a, a GitHub repo kind of around the model and we stubbed out an application that would let, in this case, it was clinical researchers who were working on uh, detecting lung cancer from early screening scans, who would take the model and then kind of move that forward by writing the software around the model so that it could be used, so that it could be fed new scans. And for that competition, there was a $100,000 prize pool. And so a ton of people were working on this. And again, you'd expect maybe people would be hoarding information and trying to work on their little corner of the project. What we actually saw was it looked like a regular open source project. You know, people were uh, opening issues and discussing things and reviewing each other's pull requests. It was really nice to see. That's fascinating. And I'm the whole time you're you're moving forward cancer research, you're you're providing early detection software to cancer researchers. These clinicians, they don't necessarily have the coding ability to put together these models or get them online, but you are making it accessible to them. Not only are you setting up the model, but you're providing a web application template that someone could deploy on a place like, for example, Heroku. I don't know if you've heard of Heroku. They're pretty great. Um, you could put this application online there, and then the clinicians have ready access to the research. That's right. So what we were trying to do here was uh, develop a proof of concept. And we were working with the uh, Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, which is a major uh, kind of lung cancer researcher and funder in the United States. And uh, um, we have a, a ton of respect for them. They're very forward thinking in um, what sorts of research they fund, in addition to very traditional kind of clinical research. So, you know, it, competitions are, are awesome. Um, they get a ton of engagement and they they really get to sort of the state of the art. I mean, it's hard to beat when you have all sorts of individuals with academic backgrounds and practitioner backgrounds who are working on a hard problem and trying all sorts of different things. You really explore the solution space. So you can be pretty confident that what you end up with at the end is probably as close as you can get to separating signal from the noise. So, um, What happens though is a model is just like a bunch of files in a folder with the source code that made them. And so um, it's a huge, huge challenge to get good models, but it's also a sort of interesting problem to work on where you take models and you try to, you know, make it happen. You have to write the software so that people can use them. So the example that I initially found when I was looking at driven data was a, a project called Zamba. It's called Project Zamba, I think. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. Sure. So Project Zamba started with a competition. Um, and the idea behind the competition is that a lot of researchers who are looking into 
um, environmental conservation and uh, animal behavior rely on footage gathered by camera traps. So these are little motion detector activated cameras that researchers can put up in trees or other kind of like man-made um, uh, structures. Some and, kind of hide out in the forest. And I park this along a trail and wait for something to move. It turns on and gives me a, a short clip of video that I review later, right? That's exactly right. And so if you think about having, you know, hundreds of these or thousands of these distributed throughout an area that you're investigating, um, because the wind blows and moves leaves and because there's a lot of uh, animal and sometimes human activity in these areas, you end up with a ton of footage. And the sort of uh, traditional way to solve this problem is to throw uh, grad students at it or yeah. um, spend researcher time kind of painstakingly going through these and classifying the videos and saying- I mean, you're literally just watching hours and hours of footage and and tagging, all right, at a minute 35, there was a pangolin, right? That's exactly Manually. right. That, that could take a long time to accrue data, I imagine. But you had a pretty significant set when you launched this competition. Yeah, we had a big set of data. So the thing about these camera traps is that if you keep them out there, you get a ton of information. Actually, it becomes a kind of a race. You know, how quickly can you label all of these videos? More keeps coming in. Um, so this is, you know, one of those things where uh, for years, people have wanted to automate this in some way, but um, either the algorithms or the, the hardware weren't kind of up to the task. And so we're finally at a place where it makes sense to see whether a lot of this classification work can be pushed to the computer first and then just verified by a human. So uh, I think you told me there were 300,000 clips in the initial data set. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, 300,000. And and the the 300,000 clips were already classified manually by people. But even if for a new clip, you were only able to tell me if it was an animal or a human, which I, I know that I am oversimplifying things. But in my brain, that is not, is not a data scientist brain. That seems like a relatively easy classification problem uh, as compared to identifying the difference between a raccoon and a pangolin, for example, right? Which is, in fact, exactly what you have done your winning models are able to classify a, a set of species specifically out of any given clip. I can upload a video now and find out if there's a pangolin in it. Am I, am I correct? That's exactly right. But there's actually one win that's even easier, that's a little bit further upstream. And so the first task is figuring out whether the videos have an animal at all or whether it's just kind of background right. motion. So that's something that is actually pretty doable with uh, computer vision. It's not necessarily the kind of thing where you need a, a deep uh, neural network. Um, certainly deep neural networks are good at that, but uh, that's the kind of thing where people have been doing that for a little while. But in order, like you said, to classify between a raccoon and a pangolin, which are both, you know, they can be about the same size and have, if you're squinting or it's dark, roughly the same kind of outline. That's really hard to do with traditional deterministic methods. So that's where um, we're just at a point where the sort of best performing neural networks do very well at that and close to what a human would just do by looking and classifying them manually. So when you were talking about doing this without machine learning, if I were to take kind of still images of these um, 
these animals. So I, I have a, a silly example, maybe from my my uh, career on the speaking circuit. I go around to these these Ruby conferences and I talk about my silly projects. And one of them was a terrible, terrible do-it-yourself home security system that used a Raspberry Pi, and it would just snap a still image every second, and it would uh, then turn that image into a, a set of zeros and ones by some uh, method. It actually would minify that, and I would end up with like this 64-bit. Um, hash of what that image was, and I could then use that's that's called perceptual hashing that I was using um, to reduce this down to this 64-bit um, number, and then I would use the Hamming distance of those numbers to tell the difference between two images. So obviously, like being able to accomplish that without the machine learning piece uh, doesn't take away the value of having not only this, these these models up there, but um, the tools to use them, like even if we know how to accomplish those things easily, as you said, uh, without the machine learning piece, it's still not accessible to the researchers. So the, so the information is invaluable. Yeah, you can get pretty far using more traditional computer vision methods. I mean, people have been uh, working on these and perfecting them for a very long time. But there's a there's a jump after that where your computer vision will kind of plateau and you need a more uh, kind of probabilistic model that can learn from data. Um, it's it's hard once you start bumping up against the um, fundamental limitations of the data you have. Like if you think about two pictures that are kind of in the dark that have uh, similar looking animals, it's not clear how you could just use a, you know, like a filter or a hash to try to figure out which is which. That's exactly. where you just need to have it look at a ton of different examples and build its own features so that it can classify better in the future. And this is why I think uh, the the future looks bright, maybe for data scientists from Harvard, for example. I like to think so. I mean, it's a <laughs> I good... think I think you may be employed for some time to come, Isaac. <laughs> we've been uh, we've been reading articles like "data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century" and things like that for a while, and. Um, I love that that this skill set is getting more attention. I think that um, it, it's actually more that the general public's attention to quantitative methods has started to catch up. Um, my undergraduate major was operations we research, which is not something that a, a whole lot of people have heard of. Um, but really, it's just sort of applied math applied to kind of real world like business problems. Like operations so, problems inside of a corporation or I've got a, a factory and you're doing optimization somehow? Yeah. So the history of it goes back to World War II where people were trying to figure out, you know, given certain constraints on fuel and distance, where do I put my planes and um, all sorts of tasks like that. And then if you think about um, any kind of company that deals with uh, constraints and optimization, just think about UPS or FedEx. Um, they're just a fractal of these problems. I mean, the, the closer and closer you look at what they need to do and figure out and optimize, everything becomes an optimization problem. So um, that's, a that's you know, going back to the 1940s, that, that sort of um, tools, tool set. But, you know, statistics is a, a much older field and people have been using applied statistics for a very long time. So all of that was a kind of roundabout way of saying uh, data science is a newish term, but it's really an umbrella term holding a lot of different fields. I do think it's special when you take um, kind of traditional quantitative analysis tools and you 
also combine that with software and computer science skills. Yeah. Um, that's where a lot of the power comes in when you're working with workplaces where everyone uses a computer. But yeah. some of this is just the terminology catching up to what has been important for a very long time. And now we also have the technology to catch up as well, right? We have, we have, we have these cloud computing platforms that are capable of handling incredibly large workloads. I have a friend who works at Google, another developer advocate over there, um, who just recently uh, calculated a new uh, world record for digits of pi using these cloud platforms that are now available, which is not not something that that could have been accomplished before. But the the pace of innovation around these uh, platforms, and now you have uh, GPUs available for you all the time to to run your machine learning and train up your models. It's a, a brilliant and bright future, I think, for data science and for software. I'm looking forward to seeing where things go. Yeah, and I think it would be difficult to overstate how important it is that open source has exposed so many people to these tools. I mean, it used to be the case where if you wanted to work on a GIS system or you wanted to work on a, a you know good relational database or you wanted to... Um, work on time series forecasting. You had to really get a job at one of the companies that either built these tools or had a you know hundred thousand dollar license to use them. Yep. And the democratizing effect of open source, and not just open source, but now having platforms like uh, Heroku, where you can create a free account and experiment with uh, getting your stuff out there. Or if you're you know if you need to run a computation, there are platforms where you can run very computationally expensive code that previously you could only do if you were really a graduate researcher at an institution that owned a cluster. So right. I think that has really pushed the field uh, ahead quite a bit and opened it up to a lot of people who wouldn't have been able to participate before. I, I do want to ask you a little bit about the infrastructure there at Driven Data. So, so far, we've talked about hosting your models on Heroku. Now, when you're, when you're training a model, this is a pretty specialized uh, task and there are specialized services for doing this, for example, TensorFlow. But then I come away with my trained model and I can put that up anywhere. For uh, example, in the Zama use case to allow researchers to upload their videos and find out if there's a pangolin in them. Uh, and, and you've seen your users using Heroku for that. Is that correct? That's right. So there's uh, one of those interesting asymmetries is that it can be incredibly expensive to train a model. Um, so for some of the papers that get published now, about um, AI applications. The researchers may have used a cluster with, you know, like 100 GPUs that was running for a week to train a model. Um, but just because the model is expensive to train doesn't mean that it's necessarily that expensive to get predictions out. So training, um, just for folks who are not familiar with the terminology, training is when you're exposing the model to lots of different examples. So the training data is, uh, data where you have both the input and the known output, and then you're um, testing it and vetting it on data where you give it just the inputs, but it hasn't been trained on the outputs. So you kind of see how well it does generalizing to new examples. That and so I'll take a data set of, and, I'll, and I'll run maybe 80% of my data through with the input and the output both present so that my model adjusts its weights to the existing identification, and then a, the, the remaining 20% I'm allowed to use to test my model then, or I, it gives me the opportunity to use to test my model, right? That's right. 
And so the, the process of finding those weights, when you really boil down most statistical modeling, we're just trying to get a bunch of numbers that either push uh, prediction into a certain class or you know push it towards a yes or a no in the case of binary classification or try to find a certain number in the output. It all comes back to just finding these weights. But the optimization um, algorithms that you need to run to find those weights when you're feeding the model new examples, that can be extremely expensive to do. So uh, once you have the weights, it's generally just a, a process of feeding in the input, um, plugging it in, and then you get out your answer. To, to your point, then using that data becomes much, much less expensive because you're just putting the trained model up on a site like Heroku, and you're only paying us whatever you're paying for your dinos in your database, right? That's right. So to bring this example back to your question, um, we talked about the Zamba competition where people were looking at um, trying to take these uh, videos of animals and classify them into um, what exact species it was. And so at the end of the competition, the organization was interested in developing that further. Um, you know, it's great to have the model, but they wanted people who aren't machine learning researchers to be able to take their new footage, plug it in and get out a spreadsheet. So that would kind of fit into their uh, current workflow of how they um, assemble their research data. So uh, we posed a, a question to our team. How might we build a system that's a thin wrapper around this machine learning model that has an intuitive user interface so that researchers can uh, just sort of upload their videos and get out spreadsheets of predictions? They don't have a strong preference as to what output it's in. They just need to be able to work with it. And everybody knows how to work with spreadsheets, if that makes sense. Well, and, and more than that, they're able to write, you know, little formulas into their spreadsheets to further extrapolate on the data. This is part of the value of things. Uh, I think these these interstitial products that kind of glue companies together, you see a lot of startups around this space where small software companies have problems um, finding docs, like internal documents. And so a lot of these startups built these kind of like intermediary services that simplify this process. Dataclips uh, is a very good example of this kind of thing where... I, uh, as a, a developer, I have access to the database and I can get into the data, but, but it becomes quite a task for me when everyone in the team needs business intelligence data and they've got to come to me and I've got to write these things. But if I could just drop a bit of SQL into a website that then they can, you know, tweak a little bit, they don't have to come back to me if they decide they also want to search New York, right? They can just add it to their query and it, it empowers people in the organization to kind of shift the load of work around. That's exactly right. And we've actually used data clips in that way. So um, since we use Heroku Postgres for our hosted database, um, we can connect this um, for, for people who aren't familiar with the tool. There's a, a kind of clean user interface where you can put a SQL query and then you can see the results below and you can export it as a spreadsheet or um, a variety of different ways, I think. And yeah. so when we've had partners say, hey, we want to, you know, we want to see where the leaderboard is as of today. Um, you know, we don't want to write custom code to do this all the time. And we don't want to go in and poke around in our uh, production system. So it's nice to have like a, a data clip that we can just um, grab a quick download and send over to them. Yeah, I love data clips. I actually didn't know of the existence of that product before I came to work 
at Heroku, but it has been incredibly valuable to me. So um, tell me a little bit about the structure of Driven Data's applications. You have drivendata.org, the actual web application. Is that a Rails app? It's a Django app. Okay. And uh, this makes sense to me, of course, and should have been my first guess because the if, uh, if I am not mistaken, the machine learning community is all but entirely dominated by Pythonistas. Um, you don't think that's true anymore? Enough. Maybe I think is it changing? I think it's no, it's it's. I think it's going in that direction. I would say it's it's uh, probably predominantly the Python PyData ecosystem. Um, there are still a whole lot of very serious users of R in the data science world, um, especially people who are in um, research or academia. Uh, R is very popular among data scientists who have more of a statistics background. Um, mm -hmm. But especially with tools like um, TensorFlow and Keras um, being very Python-centric, I would say that the majority of at least the AI, if not most uh, machine learning or data scientists, practitioners have been moving in the Python direction. And I think I spoke to some data scientists once who told me that they would write, they would come up with their models in Python, but then they would port them to Java so that they could run more quickly on the JVM in order to train up their models. Does that pattern still apply? Yeah, so I think there's an interesting uh, trend in our field where uh, at first, you kind of just had data scientists, which um, pessimists were saying was just a rebranding of other titles. Um, and I think there there's a legitimate truth that a lot of the skill sets are older than the term data science. But um, five years ago, a data scientist was doing everything. So they were doing the exploratory data analysis, building models, and then trying to figure out maybe how to get this um, working in production in some way. Um, either that or their work would end once they built the model and then they throw it over the wall and the traditional software engineering structure would have to pick that up and run with it. Mm -hmm. Now, especially in the last, I would say two to three years, um, we're seeing more and more organizations have data scientists and data engineers who sit between in the data scientists uh, and the software engineering staff. And the data engineer's job is to get data out of all of these varied systems into a format that the data scientists can use, but then also help convert the resulting research code, really, that comes from the data science process to be more like production code. Uh, this right. is very organization-specific. Some organizations just have software engineers who do a little data scientist. Some have very clear firewalls and the data scientists just finish up and then throw it over the wall. And some organizations uh, have uh, a sort of hybrid structure where data engineers bridge that gap or they push the responsibility to the data scientists to get up to speed on their software uh, kind of best practices so that their work can be more directly adopted into the engineering organization. So you are using Heroku to ship drivendata.org, and the Zamba project uses Heroku to host the model, is that correct? Yeah, so the Zamba project uh, hosts the web application and the database and the queuing layer on Heroku. The only part that isn't on Heroku is the uh, compute task which runs the model outputs, the model predictions. 
And that happens on a service called Paperspace, which provides sort of ephemeral uh, containers that are specially suited for GPU-enabled compute-intensive tasks. So uh, the entire kind of platform is on Heroku. The only part that gets uh, computed elsewhere is the GPU-intensive prediction part of it. And so you're using these paper space uh, instances. Is it more of like a um, a function of as a service style platform? Are you just giving it a bit of code to run, or are you you're configuring and setting up a server yourself? Yeah, it's sort of. Um, they have a few different offerings, and I I don't want to kind of try to sum up all of them. I'm not totally sure. familiar with all. Of, they have some offerings that seem to be more um, kind of permanent computing. Uh, environment, but the one that we're using is, uh, I believe, called Gradient. And it's for these kind of batch jobs where you need, you just need some compute at a certain time. And you're right, it's a little like a function as a service. So you give it a container, it knows how to run that container, it has whatever new inputs you're giving it, and then it puts the outputs wherever you want. And for us, we ingest those back into the web application so that we can display those outputs in a helpful way for researchers and let them kind of manipulate that data and export it. So at some point, an API call comes back and you said about making a spreadsheet for someone. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the way it works is, um, let's say I'm a researcher at Max Planck Institute and I just got my new batch of videos back from the field. Um, what I want to do now is I want to get these all uh, classified. So I go on Zomba Cloud, I either upload the files directly if they're small enough, or I point the web application to an SFTP server that has all of the files. And then the application takes all those files, um, copies them over to Amazon S3, which is where the data is stored. Mm -hmm. And then it kicks off a job, one of these compute jobs on Paperspace we were just talking about. And so at that point, what we kind of need to do is asynchronously babysit a process that is happening elsewhere. Right. So we have this Heroku scheduler script that on a certain heartbeat will ask Paperspace, um, hey, which jobs do you still have running and what status are they? Have they succeeded? Have they failed? So that it can update our state on the web application side. So you're basically using promises just as API calls to uh, connect to an STP server, get the data up into S3, and then when the API tells you that your job is finished, get that data back and put it into a spreadsheet. So it's simple, really. It's just that that you have to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we even use that sort of um, promises uh, concept in the application, like what we call the Heroku scheduler script. Uh, its job is to poll. So it's, it's trying to update the state of these long-running operations that it doesn't have any visibility into directly. Yeah, that's interesting. But Paperspace being a very specialized tool sounds like it's it's exactly what you would want to use for this thing. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. So you've got this Django app for Zamba running up on Heroku. And, and you mentioned that you're using Postgres. Is this the database that you use across your applications? Like as far as driven data is concerned, Postgres is the one true database? That's the one true database. I'll fight yeah. anyone who says otherwise. I have actually offered to fight people live on the floor at Dreamforce. As I'm giving a demo in the booth, I said, like, Postgres is the one true database. It's a plants all of the databases. Come fight me. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a database expert, but 
um, some of those advanced features, it just feels like we couldn't live without. Like the JSON-B fields we make heavy use of in the Zomba application because um, we have our own database representation of these processing jobs and predictions and all of those things. But it's also um, occasionally important to us to look at the last payload that we got back from the API. And it's just awesome that all, all we have to do is stuff that into a JSON-B field. Um, so, you know, there's no, these days you don't really have to choose between um, structured or unstructured or SQL and NoSQL. You can kind of have the best of both, both worlds, especially if you use a modern database like Postgres. I a thousand percent agree. And this is actually almost becoming a best practice for me in my applications where I do store my API payloads. It's so useful when you're trying to debug across a, um, a uh, service-oriented architecture. I've got multiple applications in my, my microservices architecture, and I'm trying to debug a request across each of those. Having the actual payloads that were returned from the various APIs stored in a JSONP field is incredibly valuable. And I, I do try to set it up for, for uh, at least all of my lower volume API calls in my applications. It's super useful. Yeah, and to be honest, I think um, it, you know Postgres is not the only relational database. I think at this point, if you choose any of them, um, you're probably fine. They have uh, a good amount of parity these days. What I think is funny and kind of my favorite genre of post on like Hacker News or other places where uh, developers talk about stuff is when people are about to start uh, a new business or something and they're talking about using the hot new like uh, event sourcing data scheme or something like that, like a true big data problem that Google is grappling with when they don't even have five users whose data they need to store yet. Um, yep. So I, I kind of think that that's like the uh, uh, like Dilbert cartoon of our time. Any other interesting corners of the Heroku platform you want to, anything you, you feel like you're doing is maybe novel uh, you want to share with us? I have to be completely honest in saying that nothing that we are doing on Heroku is novel. And I consider that a good thing. I agree with you. I agree <laughs> with you. I, I was thinking this earlier when you were talking about the database that that people are lining up to use these new technologies, these new tools. And a lot of times we're reinventing things that already existed or we're making you know small progressive steps forward. It's not necessary to jump to the newest, hottest thing all the time. Use boring technology. I used Heroku long before I ever worked here because I never thought about it ever. It would run my application and occasionally I'd get an email and it would say, hey, there was a critical error with your database and everything uh, went to hell and your whole production database was deleted, but we saved you. And here's your email letting me you know that we restored it uh, from backup while you were sleeping. And now, now you have no further obligations to pursue. That is the kind of technology that I want. Yeah, yesterday I got an email that said, Hey, did you know that one of the indexes on your primary production database is corrupted uh, from the application layer? Hey, by the way, the way you fix this is you just run this command. And I ran that command and it worked out well. See, this is this is exactly what I need more of in my life. So much of my day is just figuring out what obscure bug I've managed to encounter. Like my worst days as a developer are when I spend, you know, my first four or six hours of the day screwing around with my development environment. Everything's broken. Trying to get my my pipeline set up so that I can ship my applications effectively. There are so many things that will already go wrong with your development environment. Simplify the pieces that you can. Use boring technology. Yeah, we've had people say, "Hey, you know, you could uh, you could just have a co-located server somewhere, and you could do this, that, and the other thing." And I always say, 
you know, I know my limits. I, I, I'm not a, a dumb person on my good days, but I don't really want to be responsible for applying critical security updates to, uh, you know, all like 8,000 components of this Linux system running somewhere in the cloud that I don't really understand. So why don't I focus on the data science and software development parts and let somebody smart take care of the rest? Right. I love playing around with security, but I'd never trust myself to harden a production server. The idea is just crazy to me. Right, right. You want to play with security. You want to. You don't want to put your living in jeopardy dealing exactly. with that if you're not a security expert. Exactly. Well, Isaac, I think I have mostly run out of things to ask you about. Actually, that's that's never going to be true because I am fascinated by driven <laughs> data and I'm going to keep watching these competitions. I'm looking forward to a day where I, I know enough machine learning that I can dabble in some of these because I'm really impressed by the work you're doing. Again, I applaud you for your commitment to open source. I really, really appreciate that you're releasing these models under the MIT license, specifically my favorite license, the set and forget open source license that actually contributes back to the world and lets people use it however they want. Uh, You're doing great work, Isaac, and I thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, and thank you for supporting the Zamba project with the Heroku credits that you gave us. I am happy to do it, and we will continue supporting Zamba as long as we are able for science. For science. Have a good day, Isaac. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any Heroku's podcast, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.